And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm pleased to welcome Maria Kuznetsova to the program today. Maria teaches at Auburn University and is an editor at The Bear Life Review, a journal of immigrant and refugee literature. Her writing has also appeared in publications such as McSweeney's, The Southern Review, and Slate. 2019 saw the publication of her debut novel, Oksana Behave, which is now available in paperback from Random House. Maria, your book opens in Kiev, Ukraine in 1992 as young Oksana and her parents are preparing to move to Florida. What's on her mind at this time? What's on her mind at the time is that she really is going to the great unknown. She has no idea what to expect. Her family doesn't seem to know much about Florida, and she just can't really wrap her head around the fact that she's going to leave her home forever and that the adults that are leading her there don't seem to know what to do either. So this is shortly after Ukraine declared independence. Mm -hmm. And why did they decide to leave Ukraine at that time? Well, I'm trying to think difference between what my family did and Oksana's family. They just came as as Jewish refugees. Her mother was Jewish, and so they sought asylum, and they left with a community of other people around that time. But as kind of in the book, the community all went to a place called New Jersey, and so they went a different path and went to a place where they didn't know a soul and where the father got a job as a physicist. He was an Olympian. Tell us about his Olympic story. Yeah, you know, in Ukraine and I think all the Soviet Union, the math Olympics were a really big deal. You know, the Olympics kind of go, I think, from the city, then the, the state and then the national level. And so he competed all the way to the national level and did really well and shook Brezhnev's hand and got an award. So he kind of came to America with this high kind of sense of his powers as a physicist that didn't really, you know, he couldn't get a permanent position. He's a postdoc delivering pizzas to make ends meet. So it kind of didn't really match up to his idea of himself as a scientist. It seems to be kind of a common refrain in American history. When people come to the United States, they have these wonderful qualifications and they're brilliant, but they're not quite valued as when they first get here. Yeah. And I mean, he had a a PhD on his side, so he didn't have to get like a new degree or come with nothing. But still, the kind of science that he was doing was basically like Cold War physics. And so there wasn't such a need for it anymore once the Soviet Union fell. So he kind of felt like the kind of work he did was obsolete or not valued as much in the States. She comes along with her mom and her dad, but also her paternal grandmother. Mm -hmm. And her grandmother is not your typical little granny. No. (laughs) Oksana doesn't quite understand that she's not an old woman. I mean, as a you know third grader, she thinks her grandma's 80 or 90 years old. And when she asks her grandma how old she is, the grandma gets really mad and says, hey, I'm only 55. You know, she still has a lot of life ahead. But to a small child, that's not really apparent. So kind of her grandma is a recent widow and is trying to date and trying to find a second career for herself in the States. And so Oksana is kind of not yet seeing her as her own person as someone still trying to find a path for herself in the new country. Yeah, someone who just entered his 50s was feeling (laughs) kind of wounded at that passage. (laughs) Yeah. Ostensibly, her mom's an atheist, Mm -hmm. but she's fond of saying, dearest God, I don't believe in. Mm -hmm. So did you have something like that in your family or? Not directly. You know, as, as Soviet people, kind of like my mother's family is Jewish, my father's is not. And so like my great grandmother was born during a pogrom. And so, or she was like, in utero during a program. So she was kind of the last religious person in my family who was actually like Jewish. And like, I think it meant something to her, but you know, in the Soviet Union, it wasn't like encouraged for you to pursue your religion, right? The religion was the state. So not that my family ever said we're atheists, we don't believe in God or anything. Like we first did some Jewish traditions when we came to the country, but then kind of that 
passed. <laughs> and so the deer sky, I don't believe in it. Just my imagination of kind of if there was a religious element to Oksana's life, like what that would look like and how that would manifest itself. And though it was not something that was said by my parents, I can imagine it being said. And I think in the non-belief becomes a kind of faith in itself. So that is kind of the religion is like, if you keep saying that you don't think anything is out there, I think it suggests you think, well, maybe there's some hope that something is. At this time, I remember there was a big movement of self-esteem in raising kids uh-huh. when Oksana moved to America. <laughs> and her Who's family that? has not adhered to that standard at all. They mm-hmm. delight in finding new ways to talk about her ignorance and naivete. Uh-huh. <laughs> The mom and the grandmother kind of call her like little idiot all the time and kind of tease her for her foibles while her dad is the character who I think does inadvertently not knowing the American trends does kind of think that she can do no wrong. You know, whenever the mom or grandma yell at her for getting in trouble at school or not eating what's on her plate, he tries to kind of believe in this idea that she's perfect and encourage her to do that. But yeah, I think the mom and the grandma have it. I mean, not that they don't love her as much. They just have more of a tough love feeling about them, more of a sense of humor about their relationship with her. Oksana kind of chafes at restrictions and expectations of her. And as a child, that's more acceptable than Mm -hmm. it would be later in her life. How do you think she would have fared under the old Soviet system as, as rambunctious as she was? Yeah, you know, not well, but it's hard to say. Like, there's a refrain in the book, the case of too much freedom, where, you know, her mom sometimes wonders, like, because we're in the States you're allowed to do anything. And so that can be a good thing. It can give you more opportunities, but also there's more of a sense of being allowed to fail a lot and make mistakes. So I guess that is to say, if she was in the Soviet Union, maybe she would have come out different. Maybe she would be a different person who followed the rules more because it was harder to act as bad as she did in America, I think, there. But yeah, I think being as she is in this book in America, I don't think she would have done too well in the Soviet Union. Now, she has a little friend in school named Cassandra. Mm -hmm. And in classical literature, no one listens to Cassandra, but she unfortunately does listen (laughs) Uh to Cassandra. Yeah, Yeah, she kind of has these friendships, especially in the early parts of the book with different American characters who from whom she tries to learn what it means to be American. And so from the first friend from Cassandra says pledge allegiance to the butterfly instead of the flag. So she's kind of a rebel already. And she also tells her, you know, not to play with baby dolls anymore and not to eat meat. And so she kind of grows up fast. Well, the meat thing, it's kind of a rebellion against her family who Russian, like you can't be a vegetarian as a Russian or you can, but it's really hard. And then with the dolls, I think she just stops playing with them because she thinks it's she's too old for it. She's too cool for it. But it kind of breaks her mom's heart because she doesn't want her to grow up. Not that, I mean, there's in, you know, 2020 girls playing with dolls is maybe looked at more with more skepticism. But I think in that time period, it was just something that she did because her friend told her to without really thinking it through. I had a similar experience as Oksana. So I think later on, I always wished that I was, I had played with dolls. (laughs) There's a big point when a police officer comes to talk to the kids and she listens to Cassandra one more time when Uh she shouldn't. Oh, yeah. And she tells her to call the cops. And so she does it just to see if it worked, because I guess it was another. I mean, I assume in the Soviet Union, you could do the same thing, call the police, they would show up. But she felt like in America, it was this magical thing. And so she had to just try it to see what would happen. And she actually did summon the police to comedic effect. I'm sure that was really frightening for <laughs> yeah. the Soviet immigrants to. Yeah, it was. So I think she just felt like she had made a mistake, but her parents were really scared. <laughs> There are breaks in the story. It's very episodic. It Mm -hmm. goes through chunks of her life over the years. And 
in other novels, there are things people would concentrate on, like mm-hmm. when she gets a new baby brother uh-huh. or when someone in her family passes away. And mm-hmm. those would be the points that the yeah. novel investigates. You skip over those and kind of look at the aftermath that comes mm-hmm. like months or even years afterwards. Why did mm-hmm. you take that approach? This began as a series of stories that then became a novel. So I kind of picked different points that I thought would be worth exploring. And in making it a novel, I just kind of thought about the big moments and if I should dramatize those or what that would look like. But like, for example, like she has three chapters. The first three chapters are about how much she loves her dad and how he's kind of her biggest ally in the family. And so then you find out he's dead. And I think kind of it's set up as much as it needs to be. You know, like I tried writing a chapter that was focused on the funeral and everything and him dying. It just didn't feel right. And so I kind of laid that groundwork later on. I had her thinking about the dad or reminiscing about what she felt like right after, but in, in later parts of the book, instead of having a chapter dedicated to that directly. And and same with the brother's arrival, like the first few stories hint at the mom or openly talk about the mom having a lot of miscarriages and then the family saying, we're not going to try anymore. You're the only kid. It's, it is what it is. And so um, I think that kind of set up the fact that the brother might be coming without it being like this big story. I don't know. Writing stories about milestones, I think, is tricky, you know, because then it it sets up this expectation of like, this is the big thing we're going to investigate as opposed to looking at the aftermath of some of those moments. So in writing a story that has these gaps, how much of the story are you drawing out in your mind and imagining, but not putting on the page? Like, I just go into the next one kind of feeling the weight of what happened in between and trying to let that resonate in the new story. But, yeah, I guess that there's stuff in my head that's, you know, about all these events that are off the page. But I think I would do that with anything I write that isn't episodic. I would know these characters have a backstory and I would know what happened, but it wouldn't go into the story. You hear the cliches about jazz. It's as much the notes that aren't played as the yeah. ones that are played. <laughs> yeah. And in this case, it really seems like these. it's very important what's mm-hmm. not being said here. Mm-hmm. So you talk about episodic nature, yeah. and that makes me think of the the picaresque novel. Yes. And there's maybe even a little bit of the Bildungsroman uh-huh. in there, too. Yeah. Were there books in those traditions that were favorites of yours growing up that were maybe a bit of an inspiration for this? Yeah. I mean, we talked about uh, Sergei Devlatov. Like, most of his novels and quotes are kind of episodic stories. So he had two that were in my mind, like The Suitcase, which is about each chapter is an item He's looking at a suitcase of all the stuff he brought from the Soviet Union from Leningrad to New York. And he kind of goes through each item and talks about, you know, it could be like a pair of socks, but they're from Finland, you know. So he goes through the history of each item and how, why he took it with him. And that it accumulates to a novel, you know, but each one stands alone and is usually there's hijinks involved. There's characters who never show up again. There's kind of a snapshot of a moment in his life, but there are through lines as well. So that's his kind of writing style and it's very comedic was on my mind. Also, Tom Parada, the writer who is known for his big novels like The Leftovers and Little Children, but his first book was called Bad Haircut. It's called Stories, Stories of the 70s. He grew up in my part of New Jersey, Central Jersey, which people don't write about that much. It's not the most exciting place. Uh, and it was a book that is 10 stories about a young narrator who he goes from, I think, third grade until college age. So he doesn't span as much time as this book. But it did kind of do that, that there was a snapshot every like two years of his life. And so I think that was on my mind too. And then Melissa Banks, uh, The Girl's Guide to Hunting and Fishing, also does a bit of that where she starts in eighth grade and it kind of follows her around to adulthood and dating and life in New York. Talking about the suitcase and the Vlatov, mm-hmm. remember I was reading up on him and Brodsky 
past mm-hmm. couple of days since I was reading oh, your book, yeah. I thought that would be appropriate to look <laughs> at the Brodsky's suitcase and hat are on display, I think, in St. Petersburg oh, at yeah. a museum. Because uh-huh. when he came to America, he had some clothes, a couple of bottles of vodka, <laughs> and a collection of John Donne poems. Yeah. <laughs> That's all you need <laughs> to start your kit. A couple of years later, the family moves up to Ohio. Mm-hmm. And she's got her own code, she seems to go by. She savages a bully in Uh one turn, which we can see as admirable, maybe Uh a bit excessive. (laughs) But then she tries to manipulate a school election Mm -hmm. in role-playing games. Mm -hmm. Uh, They call it chaotic neutral. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Uh, I looked up the definition of chaotic neutral, and it says it's an individualist who follows their own heart and generally shirks rules and traditions. Oh, interesting. And I said, wow, that really sounds like a (laughs) hoxada. I just heard that term for the first time, like last week. So thank you for defining it for me. <laughs> I didn't quite know what it meant. But she really just goes by her own instinct, it seems. Yeah. And I mean, I think I'd like to think there's a logic to it. Like in the story, Private Property, that you're talking about, she hurts the bully because he's hurting a little girl, you know, so he's bullying a girl. So he, she kind of steps in and overdoes it and accidentally maims him. And then when she tries to blackmail the principal for the school election, like, in her mind, she wants to help her friend who she has a sense that winning this election might be like the last good thing that ever happens to her friend. And so though what she's doing is questionable, she's doing it out of like the motives are to help her friend as opposed to to cause chaos. But that is what happens. <laughs> but it's a personal motive. Yeah. And even though the other candidate would probably be a better president yeah, of the class. Totally. Yeah, for sure. She's, she's not looking at the good of society. No, she's, she's definitely looking at the, not. The, the welfare very, of her friend. It's very individual based. Yeah. She's not looking at the collective. She's not a good... That's why she wouldn't survive in the Soviet <laughs> Union, maybe. <laughs> we mentioned the baby brother comes along. Yes. And they don't seem super close when he's young. Yeah, I think there's a type of closeness that does emerge between them as she gets older. But it, it's not a typical sibling relationship. It's kind of a half-mom, half-sister relationship where she does look out for him in a way that's more maternal than sisterly. But also they have this kind of back-and-forth teasing banter that is more sibling-like. But I mean, I read somewhere that if you're raised, like if you have a sibling after the age of 11 or 12, you're considered an only child, like psychologically or whatever. Like you've been raised as an only child. You didn't have all those, you know, you hit all those developmental milestones on your own. So I think she has the spirit of an only child and then he came along, you know, so it is a different relationship. It's one that I think I don't see that much in literature. Like in my community that I grew up in, it was this weird thing that happened where like my parents had me, so they're 55, you know, like the age of Baba, weirdly. My parents had me in their early 20s, which was pretty common among, or all their friends basically did that. And so they came to America with one kid after the wall fell. And then they waited like over a decade to kind of get their bearings and had the second kid. So at our family events, it's like people in their 30s and then people who have just started college or entering college. I mean, it was funnier when we were little when the discrepancy was like, there's the babies and then there's like the teenagers, you know, but yeah, it's kind of a unique thing. It's about the age when you're looking for your individuality and your your freedom. Yeah, and then all of a sudden there's like a baby around. (laughs) Now you got more responsibilities. Yeah, yeah. One of the bonding times that Oksana has with her father is riding around in the car. It seems there's quite a few Mm -hmm. scenes of them in the car, and he's always listening to some type of dad rock. Yes. Until he moves into the corporate world and switches over to classical music. Yes, that's right. Like he can no longer hear extra words anymore, but you listen to, what do we have? Supertramp, Deep Purple, Beatles, kind of American classic rock. Dire Straits. Dire Straits, yeah. So so an idea, I think, of that maybe he, he got from about America from the Soviet Union. Like, this is what you listen to, this is what Americans listen to. And not that he was really trying to assimilate necessarily, but maybe that was his way of participating in the culture. And then when he goes corporate and 
really sees America. Maybe he is just wants to clear his head and listen to some some Mozart and some Bach and not necessarily listen to classic rock anymore. I thought it was kind of like <laughs> aspiring to yeah. the climbing the ladder and such. Yeah, maybe maybe they had a bit of that in it as well. You mentioned that there are several similarities between kind of some biographical details between mm-hmm. you and Oksana. What are the biggest differences between you and Oksana? Yeah, I think, well, my dad's alive. So <laughs> as I was writing the book, like the first chapter was the one where the father passed away. And so I, it kind of was a through line through the book and part of it was an exercise and how much I can get away from myself, you know? So I think that's one big difference. Another difference is I did not have such an exciting dating life as Oksana. You know, I met my husband just out of college. So a lot of her her hijinks in her 20s were imagined. Yeah, definitely did not really occur. So I think that's, I mean, I would think that I I did have kind of a, a rebellious childhood, but it really stopped a lot earlier than hers. I kind of envisioned like, what if that kept going? What if after she, like, I myself, by the time I went to high school, I was actually pretty well behaved. And so I tried to imagine what, if her life continued on a path of kind of rebellion, what what it would look like into her 20s. So in any way, was it kind of like an alternative memoir? Yeah, sort of. It was like imagining what, yeah, what that would look like if my life had, had gone on a different path. Yeah. And then I didn't go to Kiev at the end, like the character did in the book. She goes to Duke University. Yes. Later. And that seems like a terrible match for her. Yeah. <laughs> Why do you say that? (laughs) (laughs) She just does not seem to be on the same track the other people are in aspiring to corporate lawyerdom or investment banking and such. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, Duke was a good place for her because she had a lot of ambition with her writing and people there certainly had a lot of ambition. But she felt a little, not that she was doing the art thing completely on her own or trying to be a writer completely on her own, but that there wasn't as big of a community there as she had hoped. So she kind of, writing became this thing that she did by herself instead of with a community. So I went to Duke and I was recently there for, it's like an arts weekend where I talked about, I gave advice to aspiring, you know, undergraduate writers and and alumni. And yeah, one thing I said was like, there is community out there if you really seek it out. Like, I think there were plenty of interesting writers and people like that at Duke for me and for Oksana, but she like me, you know, didn't choose to really make friends based on that. She kind of like went out and got drunk and did some other things instead. And, and then writing became this thing that she did privately in her room, and which, you know, she's not the only writer to probably do that. <laughs> and she's fallen in love with a boy named Kornberg. In kind of seemingly strange ways, she's not forthright with him about mm-hmm. it. She, she kind of holds herself back, and that yeah. kind of seems a little bit against character a little bit at that point. Yeah. In that story, it might be the first time she really loves somebody. And so she's used to kind of being bold and being clear about what she wants. But when she's faced with a person she genuinely cares for, she reverts to kind of her defense mechanism, humor and antics instead of being open, which leads to trouble. And later on, a fellow student tells her that Kornberg has raped her. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And she isn't understanding in the way that the the woman was hoping she would be. Mm-hmm. This is this was the hardest story in the book to write because it was you know featuring the Duke Lacrosse case as well as you know kind of interpersonal story of potential sexual assault. And originally, I tried to write it with with the character with Oksana having like very woke twenty twenty thoughts about it, and of course you know siding with the person and against the man. But I kind of looked back to like what would a college student in like two thousand seven think 
or what would this character think? And I thought she would think of herself, you know, she would think of her own motives. She wouldn't necessarily make these, though she tries to make these connections between this big case in the media and her own and how maybe there are parallels. So she believes the person that she's friends with and the person she loves instead of a person she doesn't know at all. Yeah. On a side note, I was in Durham the day after the story broke. Oh, really? I had started dating a woman who lived in D.C. Oh, And she was a um, political theory professor. Wow. And uh, <laughs> she was uh, going to a conference down in Atlanta, mm-hmm. and I was mm-hmm. driving her from D.C. to Atlanta, okay, and wow. we stopped the night. Because of that? Or no, no, we, we just yeah. coincidence and turned yeah. on the oh. radio the next morning and heard the NPR wow. coverage local yeah. of that. It was, but yeah, it just, of course, yeah. brought that back to me because yeah. I'm... Remember it's, very vividly being there. It's when a all big. Was I mean, I didn't realize what a big deal it was at the time, just because I was just there, you know. So I didn't look. I, like looking back over the years as they've mentioned it, and because it was kind of this big event, like people talked a lot more about Title IX and all the assault on campuses, but that was kind of one of the big incidents. And though those they were found innocent in that case, it still was part of this big conversation that I think began later or was gaining momentum later before the Me Too stuff, you know. So one of the things I enjoyed in the book is that she just has so many different nicknames over the course of the years. So there were kind of like rhyming things that her parents and her family would do. And when she goes back to to Ukraine later Mm -hmm. on, they had that. And then, of course, people having difficulty saying her name growing up. She just had all sorts of names. Yeah. And, you know, part of it is in Russian, each name has like 50 nicknames. It's just the way. So like if my name is Masha, just kind of my actual Russian name, Maria is like the formal version. Then you could say like, you know, Mashka, Mashenka, Mashulia, Mashusia, Mashunya. You know, it could keep going and going. And in America, people have typically have like one nickname based on their name, maybe two, you know. So I was kind of playing around with that idea in English with people calling her Oxycotton, Ox, Konikova, Connie, you know, Okie Dokie, like but also part of it had to do with her identity, right, and her search for identity and how in each chapter she typically is in a new place and she's searching for a new version of herself. And I think having a new nickname for herself in each place kind of highlighted that journey. So in writing the stories that you make hang together, yeah. you have a character searching for identity. Yes. <laughs> when you're writing that, is it exciting or is it anxiety-inducing? or To have... This, like, this character who's so unsure and yeah. in her soul but portrays an assertive... Yeah, a bit bit of both. I think, I mean, I think it was a lot of fun. Like the books that I mentioned, the Tom Parada or Melissa Bank or um, the Devlatov novels, like what was similar was that it was episodic and there was the same character over many years, but they're always set in one place. Like Tom Parada's was in Central Jersey, Devlatov was in the Soviet Union. Well, sometimes he traveled within that, but Melissa Bank was mostly New Jersey, New York. But so part of the fun of the book was this character was moving around while searching for her identity. So I didn't get bored with it. You know, I felt like she's still finding herself, but she's in this new environment. What does this environment have to say about who she is? Like Kiev or Florida or kind of the elite world of Duke were like all very, very different, you know, in some ways. So it wasn't anxiety inducing in in the sense of like, what is she going to do next? Who is she going to be next? But having new places to explore in each part made it fun to keep going and to kind of find the through lines within all those different places. Now on your website, it says you have a new novel due out next year yes. with Random House. Yes, Are I you do. allowed to talk about it at all? Yeah, sure. It's called Something Unbelievable and it should be out like next spring. And it's different and similar from this book. It is about a granddaughter who is an actress and puts on a play based on her grandmother's World War II story. In the World War II story, the grandma is kind of choosing between two brothers and picks the wrong one and marries the wrong one. And in the present, the granddaughter is also having some romantic struggles. So it's kind of about how their stories reverberate. 
but also it's funny. <laughs> so I like to, like, I think that the grandma character Nixana kind of is similar and different in some ways in this book, but it goes through the two perspectives of each woman. So it's not just following one character and it has multiple time periods. So um, it's still interested in like generational divides, the legacy of the Soviet past, but it's a different book, I would say. But I like to say it's funny because when I describe like World War II story, that doesn't sound like it could be funny because of things that happened in the Soviet Union during that time. But I think that the humor manages to come through even in, in some dark situations. But the, the humor and the jokes in the Soviet era are like legendary. Yeah. So I hope that kind of comes through. <laughs> um, what do you think draws you to humor in your writing? People, you know, called Oksana Behave like a comic novel. And I, I think it was just like, it's not something I aim to do. It's not like I, I set out and say, this part is going to be funny. It's just kind of the way that I look at the world and the things that interest me about the world are things that can make you laugh while devastating you. And and part of it is coming from the Soviet Union and being around, though I myself didn't experience, you know, a lot of things there firsthand, just being at the dinner table, listening to my parents and grandparents kind of talk about the life there a lot of humor and my dad always has a new somehow he still has a new anecdote every time I come home which I don't know where they come from you know but just this ability to laugh at stuff that is dark uh, I think has always just been in my subconscious so it came out in my fiction. Is there a Soviet era version of parents and their story of walking to school in the snow uphill both ways is there like a, a common one that comes back time and time again? Yeah I'm trying to think I don't know off the top of my head but I'm sure there is a version of that. Yeah, a lot of the, you know, they're about like death or Stalin or Jews. It has, it's some version of laughing at death. Yeah, I'm trying to think of ones that I could tell, but probably don't have time. <laughs> uh, I remember when I studied Russian history in yeah. college a little bit. I took a couple of courses in it. And there was one, it was uh, Stalin, Lenin, and Brezhnev uh -huh. were on a train together. Have you uh -huh. heard this one? Mm -hmm. And the train stops. Uh -huh. And uh, they're stopped for a while and... And it says, um, we should tackle this by re-educating the engineer so he can get things moving. Uh -huh. And Stalin says, no, we should take him out and shoot him for his incompetence. Uh -huh. And then Brezhnev says, no, gentlemen. He pulls down the shade and says, let's just pretend we're still moving. <laughs> That's, yep, sounds about right. Yeah, so a lot of the jokes were when they're not about death, they're about like the incompetence of the country. I mean, I think you need to be able to laugh at some of those things. So that kind of stuck with me. One more thing. Ukraine has had a troubled yes. existence ever since it <laughs> left the Soviet Union. Yes. But has it been particularly painful to see them in the news so much in regards to the impeachment hearing? And, yeah. And while Russia is still waging war on them and that's being ignored? Yeah. It's, um, yeah, that part kind of, I mean, it's more focused on what the president did and, and less focus on Ukraine being still at war with Russia and not getting the supplies and help that they needed or, you know. Yeah, it's it's weird to me that now everyone talks about Ukraine and can maybe even point to it on a map. And before it wasn't really a place that people knew as much. So, yeah, it's definitely surreal to see it in the news so much. Yeah. <laughs> I remember the, the Orange Revolution and yep. Lushenko and... Yeah, I was there when kind of around the time that was happening. Oh, wow, really? I mean, I visited not like, yeah, I was there. Yeah, I think that was my first because my grandmother moved back to Ukraine after she came to America with us. So she moved back when I was in college. So I think this was 2004 that I visited for the first time. It was around that time. And my relatives were squabbling about, you know, who they supported. And Remember Yanukovych? Or... Yeah, Yanukovych or, or Yushchenko. And then again, we were there. Um, the last time I was in Ukraine was summer of 2013 or 14. 2013, so it was right before 
Like there's a photo of my husband, who was my fiance at the time, with Lenin statue behind him that was toppled like three months later. So it's it's been interesting to be there through kind of those historical moments. So are you gonna teach your your child to speak Ukrainian or <laughs> Russian? So, you know, my, my parents speak Russian to her, but I live in Auburn, Alabama, and they live in New Jersey, so they're watching her right now, so so I could be here. So I think she's still understanding at this point at, at like, 19 months, but I would really like her to learn it, but I I try to speak it to her a little bit, but I worry about how good I am at Russian, <laughs> that I'd be teaching her this, like, you know... Almost a pigeon or... Yeah, like a first-grade-level version, which is better than nothing at all, but my husband doesn't speak Russian, so we'll see how far I can take it. Well, Marie, I want to thank you so much for coming by today. It's been a pleasure thank talking to you. Thank you for having me. This is really fun. I appreciate it. <laughs> I enjoyed the book so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> Maria Kuznetsova is the author of the novel Oksana Behave, which is now on paperback from Random House. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wiplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WIPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work, but there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.